Joyful Labor Day weekend to you. Good morning again. It's wonderful to be together, those of you who are with us uh, here in the sanctuary, those of you who are online. Uh, we've been going through a variety of uh, kinds of change, uh, forms of change, changing things here and there uh, in the recent past months, farther back than that, and certainly into the future. So I've got a little change to announce for you this morning. Uh, this may be welcome for some of you, may be hard for some of the rest of you, but we're changing the time that we begin worship. We're going to change the time that we begin worship. Uh, from now on, uh, we're going to actually start at 9.30. <laughs> I didn't see that he snuck over to the drums. We did not, we did not coordinate that. We are not that coordinated. Uh, just, that's just a joke. It's a joke. Uh, some of us, me included, struggled to get here at 9.30. And then guests show up and wonder, what, what happened here uh, at 9.30? Last Sunday morning, we began our study of Jesus' teaching in, in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which has become known over the centuries as the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of five extended bodies or collections of Jesus' teaching in Matthew's Gospel. You remember last week when we got started, we talked about how Matthew's very Jewish and writing to a Jewish audience, and he may have uh, grouped together those teachings of Jesus into five groups or bodies to represent the five books of the law of Moses. Jesus, uh, part of his uh, mission, Matthew's mission, is to introduce the new Moses. Moses had been the most important figure in the history of the Jewish people, one that God had used to save or rescue or redeem or liberate them, and now there's a new uh, Messiah or a new Savior on the scene who is greater and more uh, uh, abundant and eternal than anyone. His name is Jesus so Matthew's big into sharing with his readers the teachings of Jesus. Jesus was uh, one author, calls him the smartest man who ever lived. He was a great teacher. Matthew includes his teaching. He was not only teacher, but he was absolutely a uh, teacher along the way. So that's important to Matthew. Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel to bring us up to speed. Uh, chapter 1 for Matthew is Jesus' genealogy and then Jesus' birth. Chapter 2 is the visit of the Magi or the wise men from the east. And then Jesus' parents taking him west uh, to Egypt to escape the murdering mean King Herod. Chapter 3 is the introduction of John the Baptist and his ministry, and then eventually his baptizing Jesus. In chapter 4, we see the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tested by Satan, tested by the devil, uh, which will be a refining time for him and a preparation time for ministry. He exits uh, the wilderness after 40 days or so, ready to minister, and so launches his public ministry with these words, repent, change your mind, think again, think differently. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. And then he, to demonstrate that he had the power and the authority uh, to say such things, begins healing all kinds of people of all kinds of diseases and demons. That brings us up to chapter 5, where we began last week with the familiar words of what are known as the Beatitudes, uh, Jesus taught his disciples words that would give them life. He started with grace. We dove into his teachings last week and, and began with the question, who is well off? Who has the good life? Who is well off? Who has the good life? And we answered that. We saw an answer to that in Jesus' teaching. Uh, we'll see an answer to another sort of a profound and important question this morning. That question is, what is life about? What is our meaning? What is the significance of our lives? Why are we here? Why do we exist? But before we get to that, let me pray. 
God, as we pause, stop, open your word together, it's as if we're stepping into eternity. Not just back into time 2,000 years ago, but stepping into eternity and interacting with you, the eternal one. We ask that you would help us in this endeavor by your grace. Give us eyes that are good to see and ears that are ready to hear and receive and able to do so. Give us hearts that are receptive soil, minds that are malleable in your good hands. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate or are inconsistent in any way with your word, may they be immediately forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday morning, we started in on the Sermon on the Mount with the nine declarations of Jesus. They're known more commonly as the Beatitudes, uh, Beatitudes from the Latin happy, Beatus or Beatus. Uh, They look more like nine declarations, though, of who is well off, of who is blessed, of who uh, is invited into a life of blessing by God or living in God's kingdom. They are the nine kinds of people who are blessed or some of the types of people who are blessed because, why are they blessed? Because the kingdom of God has come near to them, because the king has come near to them. And so the kingdom of God, which has always existed, is now in some way more accessible and available than it's ever been before in history. The reign of God, the realm of God, the dominion of God, the authority and the way of God. Now, uh, Verse 1, chapter 5, recapping a little bit of what we talked about last week. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, as we said last week, those who are spiritually bankrupt, those who are spiritual zeros. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who, are, who mourn. Those who have just received a frightening medical diagnosis. I know of a couple of people this week who got the cancer diagnosis. Blessed are those who mourn. A good friend's mother passed away this week. Blessed are those who mourn. Someone we know lost their five-year-old child just a couple of days ago. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. Blessed are the meek, the timid, the afraid, the unsure of themselves, the scared, the weak. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That word can also be translated justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice, maybe because they have witnessed injustice over the course of their lives. Maybe they have been victims of injustice, and so they hunger and thirst for justice, which God loves. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers also. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, maybe doing the right thing, maybe trying to live uprightly. Maybe uh, something else. And then finally, and Jesus focuses more on his disciples in the crowd at this last point. His words are directed more at his disciples personally than were the first eight declarations. Blessed are, now for the first time, Jesus says you to his disciples. Before that, it was blessed are thee, blessed are thee, blessed are thee. Now it's blessed are you speaking to his disciples. When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven or the heavens, which would be part of the blessing. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you, which may or may not have been of any comfort to Jesus' disciples, that other people before them had also been persecuted 
for uniting with God. Jesus pronounces the promises and assurance of God's blessing and goodness on all of these people, the unexpected, the unsuspecting, the surprised, in some cases the counterintuitive recipients. Not because of their poverty of spirit and so forth, but simply in their poverty of spirit and so forth. Because the reign of God had come near to them in Jesus. And this was not the way of the world, but the way of God's kingdom, God's reign, the realm in which what God wills, wants, desires, is done. And as with Jesus, worthiness would not be dependent on one's goodness, but on God's goodness, not on one's own righteousness, but on God's righteousness, not on one's own beauty, but on God's beauty and merits and resources who had no beginning and who put the stars in their places and who knit, their, knit us together in our mother's wombs, everyone who has ever existed. And this is the element of grace that permeates everything that is God and of God. It all begins with grace, which is the goodness of God or the benevolent activity of God. Let's equate grace with the benevolent activity of God, that God lavishes on people just because not anything about them, but who God is and how God is. Blessed somehow. Are you, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We all have good days and bad days. Agreed? I've never had a bad day in which, during which, people insulted me, persecuted me, or falsely said all kinds of evil against me because of Jesus. Never. I've never had a day that bad. But if I do, Jesus' word for me would be, will be, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. You, too, are blessed, even in that. And then after speaking those words to his disciples, followers, students, Jesus makes two more simple statements. The statements of truth and fact continue. You continuing to speak and look and think personally of his disciples in particular, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. In, Greek, in the Greek grammar, the you is emphatic. You are the light of the world. You, which is plural, it's you folks, it's you all, it's y'all. The group of you, you are the salt of the earth. You, plural, are the light of the world. Having announced the proximity and availability of God's kingdom and God's reign in people's lives and all of the grace that goes with that, Jesus now tells his people who they are. Who they are. These are indicative statements, you are the salts of the earth. Not some of the salt, but the salt. You are, you are the light of the world. I don't know if Jesus' disciples were ready for this so early. They probably weren't, but Jesus went ahead with it anyway. Back in chapter 3, John baptized Jesus, and a voice from heaven was heard saying, this is my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is my son. In other gospels, you are my son. And if that event was Jesus' inauguration, this event is his disciples' ordination. And nothing less than that. 
Every year as a congregation, we go through this process where we elect, discern, pray, call forth in shared discernment men and women, women and men to serve as deacons and elders in our congregation for the coming year or three years. And they go through a process, and then at the end of that, they stand up here on the steps, and we ask them a whole bunch of questions. And then there are a couple of questions that we ask to the congregation, and then we pray, and at the end of that, these words are spoken. You are now elders and deacons in the church of Jesus Christ, and for this congregation, whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is how we do something similar to what Jesus was doing with his disciples here, not just at the beginning of his sermon, but at the beginning of his ministry. And now they know also the beginning of theirs. You, 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 you in the back, you in the middle, you in the front, you are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The biggest difference for us and many disciples of Jesus is that we tend to reserve that sort of language for elders and deacons, for special members of the congregation, for servant leaders, for people called to specific roles, whereas Jesus was speaking this to everyone who was his disciple, to all of his disciples, to all of them, y'all, everyone. And so while I'm not Jesus, let me convey verbally what he would likely say to you and to me if he was here in person with us this morning. You who are with him, in him, who trust him, who love him, who seek to follow him, you are the salt of the earth, all of y'all. You are the light of the world. If he is in you, then you are, statement of fact, those things. This is the only time that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount describes or speaks of, to, or about his disciples metaphorically. Let's talk about those things. Salt is pretty inexpensive today. I mean, it's dirt cheap, actually. And so it's everywhere including in many of our foods. In fact, so many of us uh, take in so much salt in all of our foods that is it true that many of our doctors say to us, no more salt, reduce your sodium intake. There's just too much in your life, your world, your diet, your body. But that's not how it was back then. It wasn't as common back then, so it was much more valuable than it is today. In fact, soldiers in the Roman army were sometimes and sometimes often paid not with money or coins or gold or silver, but with salt, with bags of salt. The Latin word for salt, which was salarium, which eventually makes its way into the English language as salary. And in the ancient world, salt had many uses, dozens, maybe hundreds, maybe even thousands it was used to preserve, in other words, to keep food good for a longer period of time. It was used to purify. It was used to kill, in other words, to kill like infections. It was used to flavor. It was used to season. But we live in an era of artificial preservatives and things that cause our potato chips to stay good for just literally years. 
We live in an era of artificial preservatives and refrigeration. Salt isn't as important as it used to be back then. We have pantries and refrigerators full of seasonings and sauces. Jesus' metaphor has lost some of its force for us. The phrase salt of the earth has come to mean in our language good people, according to Webster. Just good, a good person or good people. Ah, he's the salt of the earth. It's not what it meant then. And so we need to translate Jesus' words to something more like, you are the red-hot chili peppers of the earth. You are the sriracha sauce of the earth. You are the Tabasco. Salt was so important, it had so many uses. It was in high demand, and it was expensive at that time. And then you're the light of the world. Imagine the first century world, no electricity. When the sun goes down, things just get dark, like when you're camping, except without all those battery-powered lanterns and headlamps that we all have. Certainly people had candles, a lamp. What we read is lamp in the scriptures. It's not an electric lamp, of course, not a bright lamp, just a little bitty candle in a bowl. So when the uh, sun went down with no electricity, things got dark, harder to do things, harder to see things. One bumped into things, tripped over things. It was harder to see. And Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light. You're the ones who make visible that which otherwise wouldn't be visible. You reveal things for how they really are. You help things to happen. You make possible what without you would not be possible. You are the light. You make possible what would not be possible without or apart from you. Beginning at verse 13, right after Jesus declared that his disciples who were insulted, persecuted, and accused of all sorts of evil were in fact blessed, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by people. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light, it's a passive verb called middle verb in Greek. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the salt. You are the earth, the light. It's indicative. Those are indicative statements. But they also leak into function, imperatives. But if a person isn't functioning as he or she was made to function, in other words, if the salt loses its saltiness in Jesus' words, it's no longer any good. It really becomes useless which isn't a word that we kind of use much in church. Kind of harsh. Similarly, but differently with light, light shines. If a city is built on a hill, it can't be hidden. People are going to see it. Similarly, a lamp, once someone lights it, they don't put it under a bowl, Jesus said. And certainly at this point, the crowd begins to laugh. Right, of course, Jesus, that's hilarious. No one would ever light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That's dumb. That would be ridiculous. Jesus, the comedian, they put it on a stand. They put it on a high point where it could sort of be in the middle of things and give as much light as it had to everything and everyone in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The purpose of light is to shine. It's to shine light. It's to shine love. It's to shine peace. It's to shine grace. It's to shine beauty. It's to shine mercy. 
and blessing and justice and righteousness and so on. And these rays of light don't come from oneself, but instead from Christ within a person. This is not about your or my goodness or your or my charisma or worthiness or education or intelligence or winsomeness or whatever, but about Christ in us and his light flowing out, leaking out, radiating out. Nor is it or ought to be, nor is this a should or an ought to be, but rather it's just are. If God in Christ is in you, then Jesus, who is the true and ultimate light of the world, is in you. And if Christ is in you, then your job and your only job is to not get in the way. To not get in the way and to let that light, the light of God in Christ, shine forth through you. To not put up obstacles, to not let sin entangle other things to eclipse Our jobs are to not get in the way and to let God be who God is. I grabbed a lampshade just for fun. Our job is just to not put on a lampshade, right? How dumb would that be if we lived in a lampshade? God has made us light, declares us to be light, and then we eclipse, we don't let, we don't allow the light of God to flow through us which is what God calls us to do and to be. Light shines. So don't let, it get, don't let yourself get in the way. We don't have to manufacture light. We just have to not stifle it, Jesus says. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Does that describe your life? In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. I think there was a song. People can't easily see the gospel in you. People don't know what your statement of faith is. People don't know what your theology is. There's no way to know about the gospel unless a person sees it coming out of one. In some ways, hears it, but sees it is real proof of the gospel and the light within a person. But some of you remember Jesus says just a little farther along in the Sermon on the Mount, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others or your acts of righteousness. If you do, in chapter 6, you will have no reward. How could Jesus be telling his disciples now to let their light shine and to let their good works, the only time this phrase shows up in Matthew's gospel or in any of the gospels. How does Jesus say later in chapter 6 at the beginning, don't let people, don't do it. And here he's saying, yes, do it. Let your light shine. Let others see your good works. It's all about motive so that they will see your father in heaven. Verses in chapter 6, which we'll go into in greater detail when we get there, so that they can see you. What is it that people see? Do they see you or do they see God in you? Jesus is aiming for the latter. Let your light shine. 
And the difference between the two is the reason, the motivation, the impetus for why a person does what he or she does, why one does those good deeds or acts of righteousness. It's about motives. But if a person allows the light of God to shine through them for the Father's glory, this is the first mention also of the Father in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' teaching, then God will be glorified, and that is the reason that we exist. That's the purpose of our lives. That's why we're here. That's why we were created, to bring glory to the Father in heaven. Back in the 1640s, way back, almost 400 years ago, uh, the British-English Parliament calls together the brightest, most educated, most faithful, most winsome and wise leaders in the church, Christians in the Reformed faith throughout all of the land. And they gather at Westminster Abbey and their charge is to put together some sort of orthodox statement and teaching tool, what became known as a confession and a catechism, of the Christian faith from their perspective. And that's how they ended up several years later with a big document called the Westminster Confession of Faith and its little teaching tool, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which have endured for 400 years almost and will continue to endure as expositions of what the Scriptures teach us to be true. And the very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Or what is our purpose? Why are we here? Why do we exist? What is the chief end of man or humanity? And the Catechism answers that question with these words that many of you know, the chief end of man or the chief purpose of humanity, why we exist, is to glorify God to bring glory to God, and, one question, twofold answer, and to enjoy him forever, that there be joy in that. Look at the person next to you and behind you and in front of you now and say to them these words, you are the salt of the earth. Go ahead. Say to someone, look them in the eyes and say, you are the light of the world. And now these words, if you can remember them, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's start over then. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus says these things primarily to his disciples, but while they are surrounded by this massive crowd of people, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, but he knows and he hopes that others are understanding And he has the expectation that his not-yet disciples, his not-disciples and hopefully not-yet disciples will get on board and receive that invitation. They will be invited in. All of them, according to their proximity, are by God's grace blessed. We talked about that last week at length. Or at least they're eligible to be blessed. All of them, on the one hand, there's no difference between disciples of Jesus and those who are not or not yet disciples of Jesus, we all share the same standing before God and with God, and that is in grace, by grace, and through the graciousness of God or the benevolent activity of God toward us. We all have the same standing, disciples, people who are in Christ and not in Christ, but there is also at the same time that there is no difference. There is every difference. Because if Christ is in you, so is the light of eternity and the light of God just begging to get out and to radiate, and to bring glory to the Father in heaven. Blessed 
blessed Jesus is going. Blessed, 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 blessed. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Blessed, blessed you. Therefore, let your light shine. And now consider the big picture. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The word earth foreshadows Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth, earth has been given to me. Therefore, you, again, you, you plural, all of you, go into all the nations teaching them what I have taught you about the kingdom of God in your midst that's available, that's ready, all the earth. The word world is cosmos and envisions not just Jerusalem or Galilee or Judah or Samaria or the Palestinian regions or the Middle East, but all of the known world and beyond cosmos. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This little band of fishermen and other simple common men possessed the light. They were the light. They would be the light. They would, Jesus says, illuminate the world. Who among Jesus' disciples who were listening that day, who among the crowds could have thought that what this Galilean former carpenter become Jewish itinerant preacher, backwoods, Nazareth, Capernaum, would actually be speaking something that becomes literally true. Could Matthew even have envisioned that what Jesus was saying would come true when he, 30 years later, writes his gospel? How outlandish, how audacious for Jesus to say, you are the salt, not just of our little area or your family or your community or your town, but of the earth. You're the light of the whole world. Through you, the world will be illuminated. Who could have thought? And so, through this little group of influencers, God ordains a renovation and a restoration of the entire world. And so the reason the church exists, remember Jesus used in verse 13 and 14 are plural, and so the collective of his disciples must be the body of Christ, the church, our collectives on earth. The reason the church exists is not so much for itself, but for the world. I don't know if you've thought about us this way. We sort of all gather, get our needs met, do our thing, and then return to our lives out in the world. But the reason the church exists, Jesus says, is for the world. It was interestingly Winston Churchill who said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Hmm. Okay. And if this is true, then we need to rethink what we've done, what we're doing, what we plan to do, all that we're about. If the church exists for the world and not for ourselves as members of a club. John, uh, John Stott writes in his little book on the Sermon on the Mount uh, these words. He says, our Christian habit is to bewail the... That's, isn't that a fun old sort of English word? Our Christian habit is to bewail 
the world's deteriorating standards with an air of rather self-righteousness, self-righteous dismay. We criticize its violence, dishonesty, immorality, disregard for human life, and materialistic greed. The world is going down the drain, we say with a shrug. But whose fault is it? Stott asks. Who's to blame? Let me put it like this. In the house. If the house is dark when nightfall comes, there's no sense in blaming the house. That is what happens when the sun goes down. The question is, where is the light? Similarly, if the meat goes bad and becomes inedible, there's no sense in blaming the meat. This is what happens when bacteria are left alone to breathe. The question to ask is, where is the salt? Just so, if society deteriorates and its standards decline until it becomes like a dark night or a stinking fish, there is no sense in blaming society. That is what happens when fallen men and women are left to themselves and human selfishness goes unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the church? Where is the church? And so we have this collective of people that Jesus has already said, bless, 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 and there's a subset of them. You, 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 all of you, every one of you, y'all, are the hope of the world. That's his plan. And who would be so gracious as that? Even if you're mourning today, even if you're grieving, even if you're a meek person by personality or DNA or upbringing or trauma, you're blessed. And in that blessedness, whether you hunger for justice or you've not gotten justice, because you're blessed, because God has encountered you, because God has arrested and apprehended and taken you into his family and his fold, you are blessed. And Jesus says, this is who you are. And this is your, not what you try to be, but when you let go, receive, welcome the light of God into one's life and all of his grace, then just let it go also. Let it go, let it flow, let it happen. This is Jesus' message, not for the good, not for the righteous, not for the upright, not for people who have it all down, not for the Pharisees, not for the religious, but for the irreligious, for the people who don't have it all together, for the spiritual zeros and bankrupt. You too, we too, me too are, Jesus says, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. By God's grace, may we live into that, not for our own benefit, but for God's glory. And in that, Jesus promises, promises us, though, the byproduct of joy of which there's not enough in the church and not enough in the world, but it's available. Let's pray. May we receive, God, the things that you would have us hear and know and become. May we live into Jesus' assertions and declarations of both blessedness and privilege and grace and also identity. That for whatever reason, however, in your mind, through Jesus named us,
every one of us, to be salt, to be seasoning, to be sources of preservation and goodness, to illuminate things that are in darkness, to bring life and hope and joy as you have brought to us. May we be these people by your grace and do us the great gift, God, of bringing us joy in all of that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.